0: In the year 1883 a young man from Thurso and Caithness uh, William Alexander Smith had a vision for a Christian youth movement and his vision went beyond uh, simply an organisation that would keep young people off the street and maybe even make them productive citizens he wanted to build up uh, young Christian men who would be strong in their faith and uh, when the, uh, the movement, which was the Boys' Brigade of course, began uh, actually in a free church uh, mission in Glasgow uh, the motto, or the object rather, of the movement was declared as the advancement of Christ's kingdom among boys and the promotion of habits of obedience reverence discipline, self-respect and all that tends towards a true Christian manliness. I love that expression at the end, a, a true Christian manliness. It's kind of out of kilter with the way that people speak today, but William Smith was, was bang on target with that kind of objective. He wanted to uh, see uh, boys who would grow up into true Christian manliness, to go on to maturity. And for the, the emblem of this uh, new movement. Uh, Those of you that have had any connections with the BB will know that it was an anchor, an anchor, and with the the motto underneath, sure and steadfast, which of course is taken from the passage that we are looking at tonight. The people to whom this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, was written, and perhaps uh, some of us tonight, uh, needed to hear uh, the message grew up into true Christian manhood, true Christian womanhood. They were exhibiting all the signs of being babies and they needed to move on. They needed to stop being uh, sluggish and lazy. Uh, they were showing all kinds of alarming signs. They were not attentive to the word of God uh, they were lacking concentration. They were making little progress in the gospel. And the response of the letter is to point these people towards their great hope. Laying hold of our hope is the antidote for drifting around and being immature and unreliable and, and not dependable uh, as Christians well we're going to look first of all at uh, in general terms at uh, hope and why it's important, and then at the provision that God has made to make our hope secure, and then thirdly uh, to see the responsibility that we have to take hold of the hope that is set before us Hope is a hope's a subject surely dear to our heart as a congregation we named our church uh, after that biblical doctrine. Um, If we scan the the passage that we read, we'll see that there are a number of key words which uh, point to the meaning and the significance of hope. Hope has to do with patience and with promises. Uh, In verse 12, uh, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. Uh, the people who would be role models for these lethargic Hebrews uh, are people who, over long periods of time, were faced with challenging circumstances and they triumphed through them. Uh, the hope has to do with God's promise, verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham. Uh, verse 15, Abraham received what was promised. Verse 17, the heirs of what was promised. This hope has to do with God giving a promise as receiving it and it has to do with the unchanging nature of God's purpose. Uh, God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. These are descriptors of biblical hope. God has a design, has a purpose. It is unchangeable. Because of that he makes promises and these can be relied upon they are certain. Now, we speak uh, in everyday terms uh, of hope in a different way. Uh, A businessman, for example, who has money to invest uh, in a certain enterprise, invests uh, his money, lifts savings in hope that this company will give him a a good return on his investment. And that hope means that uh, he is forgoing uh, what he could use this this cash for in the short term because he is hoping that in the long term he will have more money, that the company will do well. But it's not guaranteed. The company uh, could be a disaster. It could go under in a, in a few weeks' time. The stock market could crash. All kinds of things could happen. And biblical hope is not like that. It's not a balance of probabilities. Well, hopefully, we're going to get to heaven, but I'm not quite sure. It's a certain conviction. It's based, as the section indicates, on the purpose or the decree or the counsel of God. God has a plan, and he has ordained future blessing for all that are in Christ. He communicates this through many precious promises. He has told us That because Jesus is raised from the dead, we will be resurrected on that great day. We will have glorious new bodies. We will live in a new environment. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more parting. We will have lives of joy and purpose. We will serve him with all of our redeemed powers. Uh, We will have joy that doesn't... uh, Dissipate like the joy we know now. Uh, it will continue. Uh, we will make fresh discoveries of the goodness of God. They will never uh, pale. They'll never fail to satisfy us. We will go on into deeper knowledge of God, which will thrill us to the very core of our being. Now, the non-Christian may hope for things in this world, but... It is a miserable, short-term kind of hope because no matter whether or not the hope is realised, death will mock it. Death will mean that such a person is separated, loses uh, that for which he had longed for and perhaps spent much for. But the Christian hope endures because it is bound up with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection was the mightiest act of God in history. And Jesus, in his resurrection, is described as the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead. Because he has risen, we too will rise. Faith and hope and love. This is a, a trinity of our of of Bible doctrines that are mentioned together. And hope always arises out of faith. Faith and hope are always go together. Calvin wrote, true faith always goes hand in hand with hope. Faith rests on what God has done. And hope brings in this forward movement in the Christian life. There is a dynamic in the Christian life. We're not saved for inactivity. The Christian life is described as a pilgrimage. We are moving on, and we're moving on as people of the great hope. It's that hope which will inspire us, which will steal us for the fight, which will enable us to overcome, to be patient over the long term, to uh, forego pleasure now that we might in- enjoy pleasure at God's right hand forever. And it's absolutely vital. In fact, if you think about it, even at a very natural level, hope is essential. If you don't have hope, then you have despair. You lapse into despair. Everybody needs hope just to continue living. But for the Christian, our hope extends beyond this present life. It means that it's impossible for us to be satisfied with the joys that this world has to offer because we know they won't last beyond the grave. It means that we will have a willingness uh, to endure deprivation, to endure suffering, uh, to endure persecution, because God has promised great things for his people. We have an eternity to enjoy with the living God. And therefore, for that reason, uh, when hope is mentioned in the New Testament, it's often uh, associated with being courageous, and steadfast in face of trouble. Paul tells the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 3, that he always thanks God for their endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have this great hope, we will have great endurance. Now, it should be obvious why the writer wants the the Hebrew readers uh, to lay hold of this great hope because they clearly are not uh, like that. They they are sluggish. Uh, They are slow to learn. Uh, They are lazy. It seems that they are already being persecuted and the heat is about to be turned up and there are all of these alarm bells ringing. And so the writer sounds uh, a very strong warning. We have these these verses which we often uh, want to shrink from in chapter 6. About uh, those who, because they have never produced any evidence of being converted, uh, actually prove to everybody else that they weren't converted and they fall away and they're never returning. And what they need in order to overcome in troubled times is the hope that is given to us in God's promises. Imagine that you're dealing with daily chronic pain. Maybe uh, the case that some of us don't need to imagine it all that uh, hard because that's a reality in our lives, that that, uh, chronic pain is uh, a daily reality. But uh, in such a situation, what you think of the future has a vital bearing on how you cope with that pain. If you don't think that you're going to get any better, then uh, it affects your mood and your response to life around you. You may lapse uh, into uh, failing to take exercise or or eating disorders, which uh, compound the problem. However, given a glimmer of hope given perhaps the the promise of a new medical breakthrough or some medication that eases the pain, then one's outlook changes completely. You are able to bear with pain because you are expecting release from it. You are more willing to take the kind of steps that will uh, help you take advantage of that new technique when it comes along. And it's like that with Christian hope. Helps us to say no to fleeting, ungodly pleasure and instead to choose lasting joy, true treasure. It enables us to endure suffering cheerfully. It strengthens us to live godly lives that please our Saviour. Hope is such a an important doctrine, a practical doctrine for us as Christians. And that is why we have uh, uh, in these verses a reminder of the fact that that God has made every provision uh, to build up our confidence and encouragement in his hope. Back in verse 12, Paul had exhorted the Hebrew Christians to imitate those who through faith and patience Inherit what has been promised. Uh, In other words, look beyond this discouraged situation to people in the history of the church uh, who persevered, who weren't sluggish, but moved energetically forward. People who combined hope with their faith until they reached their goal. And the example that he singles out is the example of Abraham. Abraham was such a man. He's not only the father of all who believe, but he's an example, an outstanding example, of someone who hoped. In Paul's words, in hope, he believed against hope. When everything was against him, Abraham continued to hope. And the incident that is referred to uh, in the quote from verse 14, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants, uh, is from Genesis 22. Uh, verse 17. You might want to uh, turn back in your Bible to, to that passage as we uh, just consider what is going on there uh, and why this is mentioned in Hebrews 6, Genesis 22, uh, verse 17. The uh, situation is the, the time when Abraham has been asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And Abraham moves forward in obedience and it was astonishingly hard for Abraham at every level. Uh, it was astonishingly hard, but even at a natural level, to do this deed. It seemed just against uh, every grain of, 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 of human decency, morality, to, to slay his own son, his flesh and blood. couldn't understand what was going on. And... It also seemed to go against all that God had been preparing him for. This was the son of promise. God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation, had said that uh, he would have an heir not from uh, a concubine but from his wife Sarah. And in their old age, Isaac had been born. And Abraham went with Isaac up Mount Moriah with heavy heart and slow step. And there we see him with his knife raised above Isaac, strapped up to the the altar, strapped to to the, the, the wood on the altar. And at the last moment, the voice from heaven calls on him to spare the child and a substitute A ram caught in a thicket is provided for the sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord, we read, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, this is the first time that God has made a promise to Abraham. Uh, he makes a huge kind of uh, definitive promise in Genesis chapter twelve, when he calls Abram out of Haran, and there he promises to make Abram into a great nation, and to that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Chapter 15, uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham in which he promises uh, descendants like the stars in the heavens. Chapter 17, he gives Abraham the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And again, he repeats the promise that Abram will be the father of many nations. But what's special about this promise in Genesis chapter 22 is that which the writer to the Hebrews uh, points to, God made an oath. He swore by himself in repeating the promise. Now, this was distinctive in a couple of ways. Uh, First, as we're told here, uh, an oath usually involves uh, invoking uh, someone greater than themselves. Verse 16, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. But there is no one greater than God. And so we're told that God swore by himself. And secondly, an oath is usually called for uh, because of the unreliability of human testimony. And so when someone is called to make a solemn oath, it's a recognition that sometimes humans lie. And so we're calling them uh, to recognize the solemnity and to confirm their word in a solemn way but God is infallible it is impossible for God to lie uh, in verse 18 uh, we're told that and uh, this echoes number Numbers 22 uh, where of all people Balaam uh, the, the false prophet says of God that he is not man that he should lie so God's promise his bare word is more than adequate as a A foundation for our belief and for our hope. But in order to communicate, to underline, to take out the marker pen and underscore, and the highlighter, and to make it a vivid uh, orange so that it would be um, burned into the, the memory of Abraham and all who would follow after him, God swears an oath by Himself declares his promises absolutely unbreakable. Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I notice that this promise is not just given to Abraham, but we're told specifically it's made to us. It's made to you. It's made to me. Verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his promise very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Who are the heirs? We are the heirs of what is promised. We have the, the closest interest in Abraham. We're children of Abraham. If we're Christians indeed, you're a son or a daughter of Abraham the father of the faithful. We are the beneficiaries of the fact that through his line, the saviour would come. Jesus came uh, of the seed of Abraham. So it's important to see that the promise is not just a promise about land and and a nation. It's a promise that a saviour would come and would bless the world. And we are in the 21st century in North Lanarkshire, beneficiaries of the fact that God Keeps his word the promise that a tidal wave of blessing would wash over the world was kept the good news reached our shores reached your hearing and mine God has kept his word and God will keep his word with the Hebrew Christians that are at the first readership and he'll keep his word to us and so when God promises a very great reward, as he did to Abraham and to us, then we better believe it. We better receive it. Abraham was hoping in God when outwardly things could not have been bleaker. Just imagine this, this uh, doddery old man walking up the mountain. Uh, what is he, 110, Hundred and thirteen? We don't know exactly. He had um, believed God for a son by Sarah, his wife, even when that seemed a lost cause. Now he's asked to give up that all that uh, that the son in whom all of these these promises of blessing were bound up God came through for Abraham and he'll come through for these Hebrews and for us the great demonstration of God's promise is the resurrection of Jesus he is now in heaven And where he is, you and I will one day be. There's a sense in the New Testament that we're already there. Our citizenship, says Paul, is in heaven. And therefore, the writer uses uh, this remarkable picture in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our Behalf. There's two pictures which are, they, they merge together. Uh, there's the picture, first of all, of an anchor. Our hope is not like a kite. You know, uh, we're not connected with a kite that blows here and there. We're connected to an anchor. It's sure and steadfast in the, the words of the BBE motto. And we would have expected, perhaps, that the writer would have said, right, and and our anchor is firmly embedded in the the, the sea below the waters or in the rock. But instead, he says uh, that it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus has entered on our behalf. So the picture shifts now to the tabernacle or the temple. And the inner sanctuary was where the Ark of the Covenant was. The the tabernacle had the the courtyard where where all could come and present their offerings. And then there was the holy place where only priests could go. And then there was the the inner sanctuary, or the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And only on the Day of Atonement, after the sacrificing uh, for his own sins, could the priest, the high priest enter and the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the the cherubim on either side and with the the cover which was known as the mercy seat uh, is picturing for us the enthroned God who is it that is in the Holy of Holies? God himself but now Jesus has entered he has entered into heaven and because he is there one day we will enter also. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, what was it? The, the curtain itself, this curtain that's referred to here, was rent from top to bottom. Uh, an act of God enabling us to follow our Saviour who was gone before us. Jesus crucified for sin risen in victory now in the presence of God is our forerunner he has gone before us. His presence guarantees our safe arrival. It makes our hope secure. God has underlined the trustworthiness of his promises. But as we were saying earlier on when we were pre- previewing the sermon, there is hard work for us to do. It's hard work, but it's primarily hard work. We have to lay hold of this hope. And there's a restless activity which is described in verse 18, which speaks of we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. We are those, if we're Christians, we are those who have fled to take hold. Now that's a very interesting word. Uh, It's a very vigorous word. Uh, It is a grasping hold of so as not to let it go. Uh, Literally, uh, it is making that hope a hostage, putting it behind bars in custody, making it our very own. It's under lock and key. We've appropriated it. It's taken to ourselves. There's a spiritual claiming of the promises of God through meditating on the specific promises of God and applying them to our everyday life situation. And the very people who are our models in the Christian life are people who have done this, who took a scripture and laid hold of it until it became an anchor for the soul. And one of the, the great examples that we didn't mention earlier was our great reformer, John Knox, when John Knox lay dying, he asked his wife to read aloud uh, the 17th chapter of John, saying to his wife, go read where I first cast my anchor. And his wife didn't need to be told which part of the Bible to go to. She went to John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. You can see why Knox uh, found that such a powerful verse. It's a passage on the sovereignty of God in calling and keeping his children. And Knox had come to faith through that text, and Knox had meditated on that text. He found that the promise uh, that all who are brought to Jesus will have eternal life, strengthened him in times of great difficulty, strengthened his hope, became an anchor for his soul, sure and steadfast. And his anchor, John Knox's anchor, stood firm during all kinds of troubles, and he had plenty of troubles in his life. He had months and months as a galley slave, when he was captured uh, by a french galley he was uh, here to endure years of ill health he had loneliness after the death of his young wife and all through his ministry he endured the hatred and opposition of those uh, who opposed him yet he remained strong and he used all his strength to serve the lord jesus christ without wavering He had an anchor for his soul. One of Knox's last prayers um, is recorded for us. "Is this Lord, grant faithful pastors men who will preach and teach in season and out of season. Lord, give us men who would gladly preach their next sermon even if it meant going to the stake for it. Lord, give us men who will hate all falsehood and lies whether in the church or out of it. Lord, grant to your struggling church men who fear you above all. That's the kind of men and women that we need in modern Scotland also, isn't it? And therefore, if we're to be those men and women, we're to lay hold of our hope. And it's as practical as taking precious texts from the Bible and making them our very own and applying them to the challenges that you'll face in the coming week and trusting God to take you through until eventually the promise becomes our obtained reality. May God bless his word to us. So let's close our worship.